You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, May 13th, 2021. Yesterday was... My wife's birthday, I won't tell you which birthday it was or how old she is, not that she would mind, but I know a lot of people do mind, a lot of women especially do mind. They feel like that is a nerve-wracking thing for people to know. So out of deference to those people and to avoid any confusion, I will not tell you that I am 34 and she and I are now the same age. But anyway, let's talk about David Murrow's book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. This book was originally in its first edition, published April 1st, 2005. I found it at the Cedarville University bookstore in 2006 when Lauren and I were attending there. And this book was, I think, refreshing for me as a young man who had been hurt by the church that I was going to in high school, who was disappointed, who felt disillusioned, who didn't feel like there really was a place, and I didn't feel like there was an even treatment of me as a young man compared to how young women were treated in the church. I didn't feel like there was a place for me. I didn't feel like I was welcome. In fact, I felt like I was downright unwelcome, and there was a marked hostility toward me as a young man just about to launch into my life and into the world. Now, a little bit of backstory. In high school, my dad, being divorced, took my brother and I to start visiting, start attending First Baptist Church in Hillsboro, Ohio. And the principal reason was that my friend, Tony Lunt, who I had met taking assessment tests for homeschooling with the Berean homeschool group in Wilmington, Ohio. Tony Lunt was taking piano lessons from my mom, and Tony and his brother and their parents attended First Baptist. And my mom gets to talking with Tony's mom and expressing some concern and frustration with regards to the stigma that's attached to divorced people, divorced Christians, divorced families in the church. And so Cynthia Lunt told my mom that they were attending church there in Hillsboro where the pastor had himself been divorced. And so obviously there would be more of a welcome toward divorced families, less of a stigma there. And so we started attending. And I won't go too, too much into the weeds, but suffice to say, everything was hunky-dory until I got down to my last year of high school, my senior year of high school, things blew up at home with my mother. My mom felt very threatened, I think, by the fact that I was coming of age. She didn't know how to deal with that. We see that now as we have sons that are getting into their teenage years that my wife and I have very different uh, approaches to dealing with our sons who are getting into teenage hormones and a teenage frame of mind, teenage moodiness, I have an easier time with our teenage boys 
relating to them, dealing with that in a way that doesn't blow up in all our faces. But teenage boys tend to, as they get closer and closer to adulthood, want to assert their manhood. They want to assert their manliness. They want to make decisions. They want to make life into something that they can exercise some headship and some dominion over. And that's just in our DNA. That's part of how God created us. It says in Genesis that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. But we also know from cover to cover that God did not create men and women in a uniform fashion. Men and women are not interchangeable. We are not identical. We are not uniform. We are different. God created us differently. He has different roles for us to occupy within the home, within the church, within the city, within the nation. And that's good. That's not bad. That's not a result of the fall. That is by God's design. That is part of the created order. Just like within the Trinity, and I believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have a equality between the members of the Godhead or the, the different uh, persons within the Trinity. But you don't have a uniformity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, etc., etc. And there is submission within the Trinity. The Father has headship. The Son submits to the will of the Father. And even though there is equality and Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God, you have this picture of submission and relationship and authority within the Godhead. And there's nothing untoward about that. That is not a tale of oppressor versus oppressed. That's a tale of authority and submission. So it shouldn't surprise us in the least that within the family you have a father and a mother and children. You have a husband, you have a wife, you have offspring. And within that framework, you have authority. Yes, we're all created in God's image. Yes, we have equal worth and value to God as his image bearers. But no, we don't have equal authority within the home. The father is the head of the home. The husband is the head of the home. But feminism has worked in our day, in the modern era, to turn this on its head. I would say that the temperance movement and women's suffrage got that ball rolling in the form that we now recognize it in America. But one of the practical outgrowths of feminism infiltrating Western culture, infiltrating the church, is that men feel unwelcomed. Men feel out of place. They feel like they don't belong there unless they're willing to embrace this feminized religion that doesn't really coincide with biblical Christianity. Not really truly. It's well and good that we embrace the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, when that's appropriate, but it's also just as good since all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for doctrine, for instruction unto righteousness, for rebuke, for exhortation, for correction, it is good, just as good, to say that Jesus was powerful, that he was assertive, that he was authoritative. In fact, that's one of the things that is marked in his early ministry is that the people marveled that he taught with authority, taught as one with authority, not like the teacher's of the law that they were used to taught, not like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He taught with authority. 
So you have in Jesus authority, not just perceived, but authority actually. He does have authority. The word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's power. That's authority. That's standing. He's the only begotten son of the father. That's authority. That's power. That's standing. And we have to respect that and not just love it. So when I came across David Murrow's book, it was such a breath of fresh air because it all of a sudden made me feel like I'm not taking crazy pills to feel out of place in the church as a man who is trying to follow after Jesus, trying to love God, trying to submit my life to God. I don't fit in in the church as I'm trying to embrace biblical masculinity, biblical manhood. What does God say a man should be like? What does God say I need to be like as an individual man? Because not all men are called to the exact same thing. We are not all given the same gifts. Paul writes in Corinthians, different spiritual gifts are given to different members of the body. And that's true on an individual basis, but that's also true between men and women. Men have certain proclivities. Women have certain proclivities. And if we elevate one set of proclivities and we denigrate the other, that is not just a sin against our fellow men. That's not just a sin against men, for instance, that we would say all of their characteristics are bad and all of the women's characteristics are good and the men need to become women in order to be accepted in the church. We're not just sinning against the men when we do that. We're also, more importantly, more to the point, sinning against God and his created order. We're rebelling against God and his created order. You know, I just had this conversation with my son Eli a couple of nights ago, and somehow the topic of the LGBTQ movement came up, and I was watching Michael Knowles' program, Sodom and Gomorrah by the Sea, talking about California hemorrhaging population to other states in the U.S. And he talks a bit about Bruce Jenner slash Caitlyn Jenner, the dude that looks like a lady now, being brought to task, taken to task by Sarah Silverman, the comedian. And Sarah Silverman is just incensed at the transphobia, supposed uh, transphobia, that Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner is exhibiting, saying that transgender boys or girls or whatever, whatever you call a boy who thinks that he's got a girl actually trapped inside of him, he's a girl trapped in a boy's body, whatever, we shouldn't allow those people to compete against girls in girls' sports for scholarships to universities, et cetera, et cetera. We shouldn't let that happen because it's not fair. Now, he's saying this as the most prominent preeminent transgender person in our society today. Arguably, Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner is the most high-profile transgender person that anybody could name. And yet Sarah Silverman is going to castigate him and call him transphobic. Riddle me that one. That doesn't make any sense. But as Michael Knowles is talking about all of this, he's talking about the LGBTQ movement more broadly and the confusion of it and how it doesn't make sense and it's self-defeating and now these people are eating their own and my son Eli is sitting here on the computer playing Minecraft or some mod for Minecraft 
that's actually Pokemon. Uh, it's, the, it's the Pokemon game, but Minecraft style. So he's playing it, and he stops all of a sudden. He says, you know, the LGBTQ thing doesn't make any sense to me. That's confusing. And so I pause Michael Knowles, and I say, do tell. You know, you're, I agree with you, but elaborate. And he says, well, how does that work that two girls together are lesbians, but is are they boys then if they like girls, or are they, is one of them a boy really? Is it? How does that, it doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. I said, well, let me sum it up. Let me make it really simple. It doesn't make any sense if you're presuming that these people want it to make sense. But that's just it. It's a nonsense machine. It's not supposed to make sense. In fact, it's supposed to make war with everything that would make sense if we were listening to God's promises, his explanations, his commands, if we were reading God's word and taking his word for it, that he created us male and female in the beginning in his image, then yes, this would be confusing that these people think that that is in alignment with what they're living like, how they're living, how they're talking, how they're expressing themselves, how they're interacting with each other. But what you have to understand is that at the root of all of this is a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against God, and this is just the way of expressing it. This is a way of artistically, with your life as the canvas, painting a picture that says, I reject God's authority in my life. I reject the headship of Christ. I reject God's word as authoritative in my life. I will be my own God. I will be the ruler. I will ascend to the Most High, as Lucifer says, and it gets him kicked out of heaven with a third of the heavenly host. This is all about rebellion. This is about throwing off God's authority ultimately, but underneath God's authority, we're throwing off other authorities that he's put in place. Paul, the apostle, writes in his letter to the church in Rome that all authority is from God. There's no authority which exists except that God has instituted it. And so we're told to submit to the governing authorities. In that context, it's talking specifically about civil authorities, specifically about the Roman government, even when it's unjust, even when it is ungodly, even when it persecutes those who do what is good and it rewards those who do evil, it is still a minister of God whether or not it is being faithful in its calling, in its purpose. And so also men. So also when men fail to be loving husbands and fathers, when they fail to be respectable, when they fail to be virtuous, when they fail to be godly, when they fail to be honest, when they fail to work hard and provide for their families, when they fail to protect those in their care, that doesn't mean that they no longer have authority. It means that they are sinning against God first and foremost. And so the proper response to that is not to say, well, let's throw off the headship of the father and the husband in the home or in the church or in the town, or in the city, or in the nation, the response should be to call those men to repentance. And so also, if there are women who are trying to seize power, just like Eve was told in the garden, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, you're going to be constantly trying to wear the pants in the family. You're going to be constantly trying to seize that mantle of leadership from him and you're going to nag him and you're going to 
bully him and you're going to manipulate him and you're going to try and twist and turn him in the direction you want him to go because that's how sin is going to express itself in you. He's going to have sin expressing itself in a different way because he's created differently. He's put in a different context. He's put in a different position of authority. But that is going to be your lot as a woman. Well, now we find in a lot of churches that you have women attending and trying to take over and trying to be in charge. And men get the assumption that this is not a place for them. They, they take it for granted when they walk in and everything is doilies and pastels and flowers and it smells like your, uh, you know, widowed great aunt's tea parlor, they get the impression that this is not for them. This is not where they're supposed to be. They are out of place. They've just walked into Joanne's Fabrics. They've just walked into the feminine hygiene aisle at Walmart. This is not where they're supposed to be. And so they leave. Or they try to become accepted. They try to embrace this false idea of a feminized Christianity, of an effeminate Christianity. Now, unfortunately, all too often, even the leaders in the church, if they are a man, if it's a male pastor, if it's a male deacon, if it's a male elder, if it's male uh, governing board, whatever, they buy into this and they repeat after the broader culture. But we need to remember, we are called in the New Testament to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that by knowing what is true, we can test what is God's will. We can test whether this direction or that direction is where we're supposed to go. So this all comes back to David Murrow's book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I picked it up in 2006. I read it. And all of a sudden it made sense that I, as a young man, got a very different treatment from how Lauren did as my first girlfriend, then fiance, and then newly wedded wife. She got a very different treatment in the church. People were coming up to her and telling her, don't marry him, shop around. I'm trying to ask questions and make comments and engage with my faith and take a very active role in the church because I've been put forward in skits. I've been put forward in helping to lead worship. I've been held up as an example by certain people in the church. I've been asked what I think about things. I've been asked to help and lead uh, an evangelism training class that we had at the church, Wave the Master by Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. So I'm asked to get engaged, and I'm being told by my youth pastor and everybody, seemingly, in theory, that you need to do the brave thing. You need to live according to God's word. You need to live according to conviction and let the Holy Spirit and God's word lead and guide your life. But then in practice, when that starts expressing itself in a distinctly masculine, assertive way, all of a sudden, pump the brakes. That's not how this goes. You can't go asking this girl to marry you. You can't go questioning why we have in memory of so-and-so on this cross and this altar at the front of the sanctuary when we should be thinking about Jesus. You can't go writing a letter to the pastor saying, hey, I have some concerns and some questions about 
Paul's qualifications for overseers and deacons to Timothy and Titus and whether you meet those qualifications. You can't go doing things like that. You can't go talking with somebody who's in a, a ministry when they start berating all of the high school and middle school youth for showing up five minutes late to a practice very self-indulgently, very uh, abusively, you can't go confronting them and saying, well, hey, wait a second, you know, gently, calmly, patiently, but confidently, I think we're all committed here. And however we practice, as long as God's Holy Spirit is moving and we're submitting ourselves to God and we're doing this out of a love and devotion for God, that's really what's going to change people's minds. That's really what's going to get through to them. That's really what's going to change their hearts. They need a heart change, and that only comes from God. That comes from the Holy Spirit working in them, drawing them to himself. Oh, you can't say things like that. You're obviously not right in the head. You're obviously out of order. You obviously don't understand that this divorced man here, who's now really jaded and really cynical, and these four or five older matriarchal women in the church, you don't understand that they're the ones that actually run things and that you as a young man, just having taken off from your teenage years, you don't understand that you keep quiet. You know, we've got it reversed, right? We've got it flipped where Paul writes, the apostle Paul writes, that he does not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but she is to keep silent as in all the churches. And if she has a question, she's supposed to ask her husband when they get home. We take that and we flip it on its head in all too many churches and we tell men, you men need to keep quiet. And if you don't, we're going to bring up something that makes you extremely uncomfortable. We're going to berate your fatherhood. We're going to berate you being a husband. We're going to berate your performance at work. We're going to berate your lack of engagement in the church, even though we do everything possible to make you feel intensely uncomfortable and unwelcome in the church, we're going to whack you over the stick once we've backed you into a corner. We're going to make you feel like you're worthless if you step out of line. And eventually, the men just say, that's it. This is highly disrespectful. This is not correct. This is not in order. I'm out. I'm gone. And so David Murrow writes that you have less than 40% of adults in most churches being men, and 20 to 25% of married church-going women attend without their husbands. Why is that? Why is it that, at least at the time of his writing back in 2005, about a year before I picked up the book, why is it that you have in some churches less than 40% of the attendees, the members, being men? Why, why is the ratio nearly two to one, women to men. Well, the result is catastrophic, but I think the cause is we have embraced this lie that is part of the original curse. It is part of that original fallen state that God told us we should expect, which is that the desire of the woman would be for her husband to rule over him, but he would actually rule over her. Now, Proverbs says at one point, and it is better to dwell on the corner of a rooftop than to live with a contentious woman. And what that means is that women sometimes can be downright awful. They can be downright uh, mean. 
and nasty and hurtful. And men at a certain point are going to say, that's it. I'm not, I don't have to put up with this. You can't treat me this way. You can't fire me. I quit. And when they opt out, they bury themselves in habits and hobbies and work and they disengage. And that is a two-sided coin. On the one hand, it's wrong that women relate to their husbands in this rebellious way. On the other hand, it's wrong that men opt out rather than re-engaging and standing their ground and saying, here's what God's word says, and this is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. Saying that to their wives, saying that to their churches, saying that to their communities, saying that to their schools, saying to that, saying that to their places of work. That's the responsibility of men. And if they get stoned to death for it, then they're in good company. If they get crucified for it, they're in good company. Now, ironically, the counterintuitive piece here that David Murrow points out is that statistically, when churches have a lot of men involved in serving, in volunteering, in leading, they are growing churches. Now, you could ask, is this a chicken and an egg question? Which came first, that the men got engaged or that they were growing? Now, men like things that are growing, but also when men are involved, they typically are the ones that want to push the boundaries and explore and build. And so the men getting together, they're more accepting of risk. That's one of the effects. That's one of the benefits of testosterone. I think that's one of the reasons why men are given 10 times the amount of testosterone that women have. Women have testosterone as well, naturally occurring in the body, but the ratio is not the same, naturally occurring by God's design. Testosterone makes men more accepting of risk and you can't grow a church. You can't grow anything. You can't grow a business. You can't grow a family. You can't grow anything without accepting some level of risk. Now, you don't go in hard charging willy-nilly and be reckless, but what a man thinks is reckless and what a woman thinks is reckless, just on the sheer biological fact of how much testosterone they have, is two different things. A man is going to think that something is reckless if there's no effort made to mitigate the hazards as you continue proceeding forth. If in the oil and gas industry, Every last man jack operating these facilities, working on the instrumentation, working on the piping, working on the welding, working on the construction, working on the upkeep and the maintenance. If every last employee on those well pads is a man, that should tell you something. It isn't that just women are being pushed out because the men are oppressors. And this is a tale of oppressed versus oppressors and the women are the oppressed, and we need to get an equal number of women out there operating. No, this is a fact of biology. Men are more accepting of risk. Men with high testosterone levels are more willing to accept the fact that there's a lot of flammable gas, highly pressurized on the other side of this pipe, on the inside of this pipe, and if it is released in an uncontrolled fashion and there's a spark, I could die a fiery explosive death. Men are more accepting of that risk by nature, and it's a darn good thing that we are because otherwise what heats your home in the winter what fuels your car in the summer what puts that airplane up in the air to take you to your parents house across the country your grandparents house across the country 
at Thanksgiving or Christmas? What brings that barge across the ocean filled with goods from some other country where those things are made and produced more cheaply so that we can buy them in abundance inexpensively here? What makes all that possible? Fossil fuels. Well, fossil fuels, uh, extraction, transportation, refining, production, distribution, all that is dangerous business. It's dirty business. And you'd better hope to God we keep having men with testosterone who are willing to get in there and do that work because that's what makes civilization possible right now. Well, so also in the church, you need to have men who are willing to get in there and make disciples, who are willing to ask the hard questions of the guy who's a recovering drug addict, the guy who has anger management issues, the guy who has abandoned his family, who needs to be confronted. He needs to be called out on the mat. Hey, what are you doing? You have a responsibility. You have a wife. You made a vow. You have children. You're in sin. Repent. Is a whole gaggle of women going over and henpecking that man going to get him closer to Christ? Is it going to result in repentance? Or do you need men with some strength of character, with some courage to go and challenge that man to give him an example to follow? He's not going to follow a bunch of women who are henpecking him and nagging him into submission. Not on your life. He will go and escape to the corner of a rooftop, like Proverbs says, before he submits himself to that. He'll blow up at those women, and then he'll run off, and you'll never see him again. That's what'll happen. But if you get men engaged, and those men come alongside that man, and they patiently, calmly, courageously call him to account, well, then you have an opportunity for repentance. You have an opportunity for God's word to be testified to, for discipleship, for church discipline to occur. And so I think that's a major part of why a church that has a lot of men in it, a lot of men who are engaged, is growing because you don't have that attrition happening at the same rate as you would with a feminized church where the women are too concerned about doing this in a safe way. The men are going to charge in and say, well, no, that's nonsense. We can't allow this to happen on our watch. This is not okay. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care if he punches me in the jaw. I don't care if he blows up. I'm a man. I can take it, right? Also, too, from an external standpoint, when you have mask mandates, when you have stay-at-home orders, when you have governors who have an axe to grind against Christianity because of their ungodly lifestyle, saying that church is non-essential and all the churches need to close down, except the ones that they give explicit permission to, except for the good little boys and girls who are willing to ask how high when they're told to jump, even though that civil authority has crossed the line. They're no longer operating within their sphere of legitimate authority. They've crossed the line into the ecclesiastic authority realm, and they are no longer in the right. The good little boys and the good little girls who have way more estrogen than God intended for a group that size to have in whole they're going to put their head down. They're going to say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, thank you, may I have another. But the church with the men is going to have some boldness and some courage, some intestinal fortitude, and it's going to exercise the legitimate authority and headship that rightfully belongs to it by God's design. And so you have, in the case of these bold churches, growth happening. Because you have men that are thinking, I need to get together with other men and support 
the good and the true because this is wrong what's happening. Not on my watch is this going to happen to my wife. Not on my watch is this going to happen to my children. Not on my watch is this going to happen to my city, my state, my nation. And they cry out to God and God brings them into a church where there is biblical manhood being lived out. Where there is not a light being hidden under a bushel, but good deeds are being done before men so that they might see those good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So I watched this YouTube video. It was an interview or, uh, well, not so much an interview. It was a presentation in Australia by David Murrow. It was seven years ago that it was published to YouTube by this church in, I think, Sydney, Australia. And he gets up and he asks a question. He says, here's uh, one set of attributes. And it's, you know, things like being strong and competent and powerful and efficient and on time and assertive. So that's one set of attributes. And here's this other set of attributes, like being kind and gentle and humble and uh, considerate and understanding and a good listener and things like that. And so which of these two sets of attributes, two lists of attributes, do you more closely associate with Jesus? The first or the second? All, all hands for the first, okay? All hands for the second? That's what I thought. He said, every single church group or gathering that I ask this question to, the results are the same. Every single group overwhelmingly thinks the second list of attributes more correctly identifies Jesus. Now, here's the secret. In the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, these are the two lists of attributes by which men and women are described. The first list of attributes is men. Second list of attributes is women. And so we have this feminized view of Jesus. And therefore, we have this feminized view of the church. And therefore, we have this feminized view of what men in the church, what Christian men should be like. And it's a lot of nonsense. It's wrong. It's bad. And men who have testosterone and who have some intestinal fortitude and have some self-respect, by and large, say no. And if they do come, they come begrudgingly and they get out of there as quickly as they possibly can because they don't see it as being a place for them. Now, I, for one, have struggled with this. And the conclusion I've come to is that the men who stick around are either, A, willing to be feminized, which is not to our benefit. This is not to our collective benefit that they become uh, mealy-mouthed. They think that their wife is the vicar of Christ and that they don't have a direct path of communication to God themselves. And they cede their headship to the women in their lives. So that's the one scenario. And the other scenario is that the men who are in church say, I have a responsibility. They take their responsibility as the chief emphasis in this situation. I have a responsibility to lead and love my family well. And God commands me to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together as some do. And so I'm going to go, even though it's uncomfortable, and I'm going to do it anyways. But, you know, my cousin Micah, he asks a great question because he's the one that sent me the YouTube video. And I watched it last night, chatted with him for a bit. He asks a great question, and that is, doesn't the church have any responsibility in this? Why do we always put the onus on men? The men always are the ones to blame. You listen to any Mother's Day sermon, for instance, 
And without fail, Proverbs 31 will be brought up. And that's fine. That's good, right? I don't have a problem with that. Remind women of what they're called to. But let's not always only give women a pep talk. Let's not always only tell them how wonderful they are and they're perfect just the way God created them because little girls and little women have body image issues now and we need to affirm them because self-esteem, don't you know it, according to the Gospels, self-esteem is the chief aim of men. That's all that really matters is how you feel about yourself if you're a woman. At the end of the day, do you feel good about how you look, about what your habits are, about your skills, about your service of others? We're just going to paint over all of your flaws, all of your mistakes, all of your shortcomings and say, you're great, you're perfect just the way you are. Well, no wonder more women than men find themselves comfortable. They feel comfortable going to church. They get told how wonderful they are. You're beautiful. And all the music in so many churches sounds like the way that they feel. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song, right? My Jesus, I love thee. You know, it's all love songs. It's all love songs and romantic poems to Jesus. And men, on the other hand, if you listen to a Father's Day sermon, very often it is not in any measure an equal, even-handed treatment to what the women get on Mother's Day. It is explanations maybe of how critical men are, but then comes the twist, and we are told how so many men are failing, how so many fathers are not doing it right, how so many husbands are not loving their wives well enough. Now, anytime also you hear women reminded from the pulpit, from a Sunday school lesson, to submit themselves to their husbands, you just, you just watch, you just listen. There is always a but. There is always a but your husband should be loving you and laying his life down for you like Christ loved the church. Can this go too far? You bet it can. And if we have a blind spot there, we are sabotaging the health of our churches, the health of our families, the health of our homes. We are forsaking God's pattern and his plan for the family and for the church. We are forsaking it and we are exchanging the truth for a lie. We're conforming ourselves to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed and renewed by his word. You get this sermon on the one hand about how wonderful women are, how great they are. If they're told to submit themselves to their husbands, immediately following is a three times as long reminder to the men to be loving your wife well. And if she's not submitting to you, it's probably your fault. If you're not leading well, that's your fault. And if she's not submitting well, that's your fault too. So either way, who wins? The woman wins. But she doesn't really. That's the, that's the sad thing. That's the tragedy of it. You look at these women who they get what they think they want. They get this authority. They get this opportunity to call the shots. And they're not happy. They're not fulfilled by that. And they can't be. They can't be because that's not how God designed the family to work. That's not how God designed the church to work. That's not how we were designed. That's not how we were made. Now, the transgender movement, the Bruce Jenners and Caitlyn Jenners and all that, that's just the next uh, iteration of this rebellion. But it really does start with generations of Christian men and women in the West having embraced this anti-authority 
ultimately anti-God's authority, perspective on gender in the church, gender in the family, men and women, masculinity and femininity. God's pattern is good and we should embrace it. We should not be ashamed of it because if God made us that way, if God made this his design and his purpose, then there's a blessing in it. Even if we don't always understand it, even if we can see lots of ways that it could go wrong, you know, how's this working for you, right? How's this feminized Christianity working for us? No, it's not. The, the simple answer is that it's not working for us. So that's all I have in this episode. I'd like to talk more about this, but I am out of time. I'm supposed to meet up with a couple of contractors with Convergence controls. We're going to have some breakfast. I'm going to take some parts to them for a project coming up with our generators at Centennial Gas Plant. We're going to get an automatic transfer controller programmed, plugged in, all that good stuff. They're going to help us with it, but they want to treat me to some IHOP today. And so I'm going to go and uh, eat some pancakes. But thank you for listening. If you have some thoughts on this, if you think I'm totally off base, if you think I'm wrong, if you think I'm dangerous in the things that I'm saying, uh, by all means, let me know. it. Uh, I'd like to hear your counterpoint, your question. I would love to do a follow-up episode on this subject with whatever questions you've got. But for now, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.